0: morning, my friends. Are you well? I would um, like to invite you at this time in the service to consider the gospel as is revealed to us through the scriptures. For the past four or five months, basically since our prize, uh, for a mental calendar there, uh, we have been studying the book of Revelation. This is the last book in the Bible. Uh, So if you'd be willing to turn there, that's where the reading will be from. And I'm happy to tell you, actually, that this is the second-to-last sermon in the book of Revelation. And who better than to do the second-to-last sermon than me? Because something that you may or may not know about me is that I'm the second-to-last born in my family. I have a special appreciation for 2nd to last. There are four children in my family, three boys, and then finally a girl. So I am the third boy, which I also am the youngest boy, so I kind of get the benefit of being the youngest child, but since I'm second to last, I don't get any of the drama of being the youngest child. My parents watch my sister. Not only is she the youngest, but also the only girl. They watch her like hawks. They check in on her all the time. My parents are just pretty sure that I'm alive. And, and the cool part is, is there, there, there's no pressure on me. I mean, I'm pretty sure that I'm the worst person in my family. But they, they think that I'm the pearl of great price. They treat me like I am perfect. It's, it's amazing. And I think it's all to do with the luck of being the second to last. So, second to last sermon in Revelation. It's going to come from chapter 19 and chapter 20. But before we read the text... I'd like to just sort of say some things about the book of Revelation to get us sort of oriented around the same uh, themes. The book of Revelation was written in the first century to uh, a group of seven churches in modern-day Turkey. They were living under the oppression, spiritually and physically, of the Roman Empire. It's important that we get that. The Roman Empire, think Caesar, think Russell Crowe and Joaquin Phoenix and the Gladiator. Think Big Ego. The fastest growing religion at the time is emperor worship. And you couldn't just have the right to worship whoever you wanted to worship in their day, like in ours. Their economical health, their political health, their social health was all tied into if the gods were pleased with them or not. And so if... If you can imagine you have a drought or some sort of situation that's a curse in, in your time, there's going to be a lot of people rallying around that type of God, and hopefully we'll try and appease that God so that we can get a blessing. Now imagine the situation for a Christian. I don't, I don't worship that kind of God. You go to the store, you know, there's the priest out in front of the grocery store saying, look, we're all taking a collection, we're all doing our part to try and appease this God, so we're going to need you to do, uh, contribute. Some sort of form of worship. And the Christian says, I can't do that. They're faced with this decision every day, but it's not just sort of taboo to not do this. If you don't do this, guess what's going to happen? It's sort of an act of terrorism. It's sort of seen as you're trying to hurt the system. You're trying to hurt our society. And so the writer of this book of Revelation is actually in jail for this. His name is John. John. And he writes a very beautiful and complex letter. Now, if you're reading this and you think, Dan, that sounds like a very intriguing story. That sounds like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know, meets James Bond, meets some sort of undercover thing here. And you read the book of Revelation, you're like, I don't see that at all. I'm reading this seeing angels and bulls and all kinds of sevens and things going around here. This isn't that story. Well, I sympathize with you. Because we're detached from a couple different things that make reading this letter kind of difficult. One of them being cultural context. Pastor Rod has done a lot of really great work over the last five months trying to uncover some of that cultural context that we're removed from. I mean, how many of us really appreciate actually finding out that in Laodicea, they have lukewarm water? Makes a lot of sense, now that (laughs) she's you are lukewarm, okay, okay, that makes it all the more pungent, right? Um, But context, you know, seeing it in its context is only part of the battle. Revelation is also a tricky piece of literature. You know, every time we open up the 66 books of the Bible, there are different writers, different types of writing, different styles, So you look at this piece of literature, and it's actually different than a lot of the other stuff that we see. Sure, you look at the psalm, and you say, okay, this is poetry. I know how to work with poetry. You open the Gospels, you see this narrative. You're like, I know how to do that. I can process narrative. Then you open up Revelation, and it's a beast of its own. It's a horse of a different color. (laughs) That's a little joke. It's totally different. So what's going on in this? Oh, well, you open the first couple chapters and you see, it's an epistle, right? It's written as a pastoral letter to seven churches. It's written to encourage these seven churches, to point out some flaws and convict them. I know how to do epistle. Of course, we read Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. That's the same type of writing. It's more than an epistle. You can see in the first chapter and the last chapter, Chapter 1, verse 3. Chapter 22, verse 10. A specific saying. This is a book of prophecy. Okay. Epistle isn't prophecy. Uh, What's prophecy? How do we read prophetic literature? Well, our Bible has lots of prophetic literature in it. Jeremiah, Isaiah, all the... We even have sections of major and minor prophets in the Hebrew Scriptures. What's the heart of the prophet? The heart of the prophet is simple to speak truth to power. 90% of prophetic literature in our Bible is specifically calling out corrupt leadership. That's why prophets are always getting in trouble. <laughs> they speak truth to power, they use phrases a lot like, Thus saith the Lord. They use dramatic um, actions to prove a point. You know, remember Jeremiah with the yoke that he has on his shoulders. They breaks. Remember, I mean, how long did Ezekiel had to lay on his side for to prove a point? It says like 390 days. I don't even know if that's physically possible. But look, it's, it's, it's Ezekiel laying on his side again. Everybody's walking by, seeing this guy, making bread. Ezekiel bread. That's something that we used to eat when I was a kid. John the Baptist, why is he eating that? Why is he wearing that? Why is he out there in the wilderness to prove a point through dramatic actions? This is the heart of the prophet, and they're critiquing corrupt power. Well, that's a strong theme, as we see in the book of Revelation. This book has a strong theme, to look at the empire and say, no. The empire that says, I am God. The empire that says, I give peace, I give comfort, I give control. And the book of Revelation looks at that and says, No, this corrupt way of life, this corrupt system that you've brought is evil. The book of Revelation is an epistle, it's also prophetic. But wait, there's more. You read the first verse of Revelation and you see these words This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The ancient word behind Revelation is apocalypse. That's also a type of literature, apocalyptic literature. This was developed by the prophets of old in the period of exile. Something that's indicative of apocalyptic literature is the use of numbers in a symbolic way. Almost never is it used to just simply be quantities, but it's more to bring quality. The numbers that are used like four, seven, ten, a hundred, a thousand, they're used to, to to add meaning to a certain truth or symbol. It also is used of, uh, they use symbolic language to describe things. They use wars and kings of the past in order to describe things. And the point of apocalyptic literature is this. To inspire hope to a people group who are oppressed... They started writing in these, in these big dramatic scenes, in these big language, in ultimate uh, language to say, we are going to be redeemed someday and fully redeemed. We are going to be resurrected. We are going to be re- uh, vindicated. There's going to become justice. We're going to be set free to a people group who's oppressed. Apocalyptic literature is gospel. Revelation isn't just one of these three things. It's all three of these things and it's woven together. And I just want to say, sometimes it's hard to parse that out. And I want to give you permission to be frustrated, but I also want to give you permission to study. To not be prideful and arrogant and say that I could just simply flip open, look at, glance at something, and then just instantly have a understanding of it. But take some time, study, wrestle, learn, grow. Treat this book of Revelation like a complex, beautiful uh, piece of literature. Complicated doesn't always mean unbiblical. Look at my marriage, for example. Complicated, sometimes complicated is the most beautiful thing. If you don't know that by now, Valentine's Day is in two days from now. (laughs) Complicated can be very beautiful. Chopin Playing a cello by himself is beautiful, but it's never going to replace the symphony. It's never going to replace an orchestra. If we can learn how to appreciate someone who writes a symphony and somebody who composes something really beautiful and big, we can also learn to appreciate that John's doing the same thing. And sometimes when you create these big, beautiful, complicated works, they speak to places deep down in our hearts that maybe prose or proposition could never do. So with all that being said, as kind of a really lengthy introduction, why don't we read our text this morning and carry that along with us. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11, a strongly apocalyptic section. I'll be reading all the way through chapter 20, so when you stand with me, just get ready to stand for a little while. Take a deep breath. Revelation 19, verse 11. I saw heaven standing open. We never said that before. I saw heaven standing open, and before me was a, a, a rider on a white horse. The rider was called Faithful and True. With justice he, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule with an iron scepter, says Psalm 2. He treads winepress with the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh is the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. I saw an angel standing in the sun crying out with a loud voice to all the birds flying in the air. Come and gather for the great supper of God so that you can eat the flesh of kings and generals and mighty men, horses and riders, the flesh of people great and small, free and slave. I saw the beast. And the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war on the rider of the horse and his army. But the beast was captured. And with him, the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on behalf of the beast. With these signs that he deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive in the lake of fire of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. All the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having a key to the abyss, holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the abyss, locked the seal, and sealed it, locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore till the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short period of time. Next, I saw thrones, on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the Word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image or received his mark on their forehead or hand. They came to life, and they reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead didn't come to life until the thousand years were over. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. But they will be priests of God in Christ and reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years were over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog to gather them for battle. In number, they will be like the sand of the seashore. They march across the breadth of the earth and surround the camp of God's people, the city that he loves, but it, But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to the works that they had done. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. These are the very words of God. And that pretty much says it all. <laughs> so, it's just something to think about. <laughs> What's John doing with these images and the, this vision that he has given? Well, I'd like to just share with you shortly this morning, this image plus two other images uh, in this vision in Revelation. If Revelation chapter 4 to 20 was a pond, I'd just like to skip a stone across the top, bounce it three times, and have it land right in Revelation 19 and 20. There are, there are these movements that I see happening throughout John's writing of how the kingdom of God establishes itself on the earth, of how God starts to release and spread his kingdom over the earth. So in order to do that, we're going to have to back up and start to, to, to go through some of this vision Um, in in sections, right? So if I talk too fast, just say slow down a little bit. My favorite part, the first way that John depicts uh, the kingdom of God unleashing itself on earth as it is in heaven, is back in chapter 5. John looks up, he sees a throne. There was one who was seated on the throne. He, He has a scroll in his hand. The scroll is sealed with seven seals. It's perfectly sealed shut. And John looks and he sees that nobody's found worthy in heaven or on earth or under the earth to open the scroll or do anything with it. Now what's the significance of this is this. That he who is able to open the scroll has the power to make a change. We know what this feeling is like to really deeply desire something to change about the world that we live in. Nobody's found worthy to open the scroll. And so John weeps. And he weeps. He feels that feeling of hopelessness. Tears of bitterness are in his eyes. And then an angel says to him in verse 5 these beautiful words Weep no more. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome. And John looks up and he doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb who was slain. So this vision starts to show us that the first way that the kingdom of God has started to spread throughout the world is through a lamb who was slain. The first way that this overcoming starts to happen is through the lamb who was slain. He looks up and he sees something that's been echoed in all kinds of other places in Scripture. He sees this person that Daniel saw in Daniel 7 the Son of Man, who approached the Ancient of Days and was given authority to rule the nations. He sees what was sung about in Psalm 24. Lift up your head, O ye gates, for the King of glory has come. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. He sees who Paul wrote about in Philippians chapter 2 when he said, Jesus, who is obedient to the point of death, has been lifted up, and seated at the right hand of the Father, and given a name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. The kingdom of God begins to spread at the, at the, sacri- the, the loving sacrifice made by the Passover lamb, Jesus on the cross. He is given authority, takes the scroll takes a scroll that was sealed and starts breaking the seals. Each seal is broken and dramatic things uh, unfold in the world. At the seventh seal, he opens it. Trumpets are blown and after they are blown, everybody says in a loud voice, the kingdoms of earth are the kingdoms of our God and of his Messiah and they shall rule with authority forever and ever. In chapter 11, verse 15. So this moment becomes this moment of affirmation that the kingdoms of earth are the kingdoms of the Messiah. And he's going to start uh, unleashing his kingdom and establishing it on earth. It's time to pause for just a moment of reflection. Because everybody sees the Lamb take this scroll and everybody starts to celebrate and cheer because it's true and, it, and, it, and it's right and, and, it, and it works. And so... I'm wondering if we or you could evaluate yourself and see if you are either weeping like John was weeping in chapter 5, verse 4, or if you're celebrating. And the difference between somebody who's weeping and celebrating is if the the lamb who was slain is at the center of it. If the lamb who was slain is at the center of your life, this is how the kingdom of God is going to start breaking into it. Is there something that you feel hopeless about? There's something you, that, your, that your marriage, it, it's just not, the, 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 there's nothing that will change this, what's going on. You feel like you can't, you can't there's no one that's going to fix this. Well, is, is the cross at the center of your marriage? Is the cross at the center of your finances? Is the cross at the center of your mission? Is the cross at the center of your friend circle, the, at the center of your career? Because when you put him where he belongs, his kingdom and his authority and his rule is going to start to s- spread out into your life. And the kingdom of God spreading into our life brings health, brings redemption, brings victory. So This is the first way that I see John making this movement of how the kingdom of God establishes itself on earth as it is in heaven. Through the lamb who was slain. After the lamb takes the scroll and everybody affirms him, they're worshiping him. And one of the things that they say is very telling. They say this, worthy is the lamb who was slain. For he has ransomed with his blood people from every tribe, every language, every people and nation. To be priests of our God and to rule with God. The second way that John depicts the kingdom of God establishing itself in this world is through these witnesses and these priests of the Lamb who was slain. For the next season of chapters, you start to sift through and see that the Lamb isn't the primary person doing work here. We see these witnesses that he sends out into the world. And John depicts these witnesses in symmetrical contrast with some um, opposition. The opposition are, are characters like this in chapters eleven and are in twelve and thirteen, excuse me. The, the the dragon, who he calls the devil, Satan, the beast of the sea, stands for the emperor uh, the, the, the empire and the evil system of the world, the, the kingdom of man, the beast of the land which is anybody who propagates or anybody who's a priest for that, the system of evil and the kingdom of man. And then the people who are buying into that are in contrast to the lamb who was slain and his priest and the one who sits on the throne. Not in equal power against each other, but just in this is his way of writing. This is what the opposition looks like. The beast, his witness, the dragon, they have one thing that they're doing. They're trying to deceive the nations into believing that the lamb isn't who he says he is. They try to deceive the nations into believing that there's no life in the lamb. But that they can provide life. That they can provide happiness. And they can provide uh, satisfaction. And a lot of people buy it. A lot of people start to pledge allegiance to the beast. They start to worship the beast. They start to say, who is like the beast? Who can make war against this? this is awesome? And the witnesses of the Lamb have one job to do. Stand in front of that lie and say, I'd rather die than let that continue. I'd rather die than allow that, to to align myself with that. They do. They become martyrs. The reason why this is an important uh, aspect to see in the vision of how the kingdom of God spreads in this world is because I think that we're in that same space now. For the simple fact that The third way that John depicts the kingdom coming is by the king actually coming. Since that hasn't happened yet, we're somewhere in between the lamb who was slain and the rider on the white horse. And this space is through faithful witnesses, through the priests of the lamb who was slain. So it's important for us to ask ourselves, what's what's a priest of the lamb who was slain or a faithful witness look like in 2017 Grand Rapids? I know that I tend to not get super practical but I just have an appreciation for the complexity of everybody's lives and I don't want to oversimplify anything but I'm just going to try and help start to shape kind of what that looks like and the simple version of it is it looks like all of us discerning what are the lies that are being told to the people in our sphere of influence and what am I going to do about it. The dragon's still out. The beasts, they're still deceiving. There are still plenty of lies that people are believing. What are we going to do about it? We got priests and witnesses in this room who are going into Stocking Elementary School fully aware that children are being told a lie that they have no father. And the priests say... I would rather die than let that lie be continued to to be believed by these children. I'm going to confirm the truth by being there. I'm going to confirm the truth of the Lamb by being there. We have young people in our city who believe the lie that until they have this next sexual encounter, they haven't lived. They don't have life until they have this next substance that they're going to abuse. We need priests to move into that and say, I'd rather die than let that lie be continued on in that life. I'd rather confirm the reality that life is found in the Lamb, and the Lamb alone. We have nations in our world that believe lies, that they're abandoned, that there is no God that loves them. We are the priests and the witnesses. We have many in this church who are willing to go into uh, dark places in this world and say, I'd rather die here trying to confirm the love of the Lamb of God for this people group than to uh, sit back and allow a lie to continue to be told. Forgiveness. We're here to confirm the forgiveness of the Lamb who was slain. How will the people who are driving terribly in front of us know that they're forgiven if we're not willing to forgive them? How? (laughs) How will the people who frustrate us on Facebook know that they're forgiven if we're not willing to forgive them? How will the people on the other side of whatever argument we're fighting know that there's forgiveness if we're not willing to forgive them? We are the confirmation that the forgiveness of the Lamb is on the table, and it's unconditional and unlimited. Be the the confirmation. Be the witness. Because this is how we're going to dispel the lies of the evil one in our culture and sphere of influence. This is how we're going to win the hearts of the nations over. This is how we're going to confirm the prayer. On earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I'm going to confirm as it is in heaven with my life. It's not going to make sense to your in-laws. It's not going to make sense always to your bank account. It's not always going to make sense to your five-year plan. It's going to be like that woman who had the jar full of costly perfume and pours it on Jesus' feet. Everybody looked at her and said, I don't get that. I don't understand that. This is a waste of money. This is a waste of resources. And Jesus says, this is what it's like. A costly gift, sacrificed out of love. Wherever the gospel is preached, this woman and her action is going to really be seen. This isn't a guilt trip. This is a pep talk. I'm here to, uh, to tell you that it's not all of these things that you have to do. But one of the last things that Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 is this. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and empower you to be my witness. So you're going to have everything that you need to be able to be everything that he wants you to be. He's going to empower you to do whatever that thing is that you're discerning right now that you need to step into. And we know that those who align themselves with the beast are the ones who are seeking to save their lives. But those who align themselves with the lamb who was slain lose their lives. And it is they that really find it. Chapter 12 and verse 11 sums it up for this people group and says, They overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. For they didn't love life so much that they shrunk away from death. The second way that John sees the the kingdom of God being established in this world is through the faithful witness of the followers of the Lamb. As we move into chapter 19 and 20, something that I struggle with is all the violence. Something I struggle with is this judgment, the idea of judgment. And I just wanted to remind you of the words of Jesus. He connects the judgment actually to the word of witness. He connects the judgment in the end to uh, the truth that we're protecting. Remember in uh, John chapter 12 in verse 44 to 48 when he's, he yells out in a loud voice these words. If anybody doesn't receive my words, I don't judge them. I have come to save them. But if anyone doesn't receive my words, in the last day they will have a judge and their judge will be my words. It's the truth that is rejected by people who align themselves with the beast, with the system of the world that's evil or with the, the, the Satan. It's those people who look at the truth and say, I refuse to have that, that are being judged. And apparently are thrown into a place of great irony. The lake of fire. Not really sure how that makes any sense, because a lake cannot be fire and a fire cannot be lake. But it's kind of, to me, like a way of saying, those, those people are put into a place of great pain where they are 100% free to be slaves. They are put into a place of pain where they're free to be slaves forever. What should we do with these pictures of the rider and these pictures of the king and and the thrones and the martyrs? Frustratingly, in in a lot of the research that I've done on this, um, there aren't many spiritual reflections that that people have written. There are a lot of uh, people, however, who have um, debated about different meanings of this and tried to figure out different systems of how to put all of this together. But you're welcome to, to research on your own. I feel like a more appropriate thing to be done this morning, though, is for me to just give some reflections on uh, what, this, what this essentially means. Chapter 19 and 20 means a lot more, but no less, than a response to evil in this world. It's very clear when you put all the pictures together in opposing, in opposing one another, what's actually happening. You have all of the characters that were thought to be victorious. All of the characters that were thought to, to win. Set up in contrast to all the characters who were thought to have lost. You have the kings of the earth, the beast, the false prophet, and the Satan here. And then you have the martyrs, the, uh, the writer, the, his redeemed over here. And we see the truth about both of them. All that was thought through earthly means to be victorious and and strong are brought down and defeated in a moment. Everything that was supposed to be giving life is losing life. And everybody that was supposedly lost life is given life. The martyrs, the saints, they're all shown to be alive and well and ruling. Just what Jesus said that he would do in chapter 3. To he who overcomes, I will give the right to sit on the throne with me. Satan, the most powerful of them all, is leashed up like an animal, like a pet. He is put away and brought out whenever they feel like it. Suppose it's kind of hodgepodge rebellion that he gets together, but then in a moment he surrounds the people of God and is defeated. It's very clear who wins and who loses. And this is gospel. Sobering as it is, this is good news to a people who have felt any injustice or oppression. It's good news to places deep down in the interior of my soul as well. Wondering, is there a response to injustice and evil in my religion? Is there a response? It, it, what are you going to do about the injustice in the world, God? And then all you have to do is read this section that says, A rider is coming, and his response to evil in the world is no, it will not succeed. His response to all the greatest powers that can be articulated in opposition to the kingdom of God is this. You will be defeated. So is that good news to you? Look in the mirror. When's the thing inside of you that you feel like you're never going to get over? What's that that thing inside of you that you feel hopeless about? That thing that you've been struggling with? The answer to that is one day that will be uh, defeated. The enemy that torments us will be defeated. Sometimes I feel like what C.S Lewis said when he said, "Oh, to be free of myself for a moment would be like a glass of water to a man in the desert because I struggle with so many things: pride, ego, self-exaltation, the need to be right all the time. When will I be free from this? A writer's comment. And he is going to come in truth. What are the lies that the, that the enemy is still telling us? What are the lies that you're susceptible to believing about yourself? There are lies that we've been being told our entire lives. About your self-worth. About your self-image. About your identity. What are the lies that we can't just shake? That we can't get over? The writer is coming with truth. Truth. And he is going to speak the truth to you. He is going to tell you of your sure identity. He's going to tell you how he loves you. And he is going to wipe away every painful tear from your eye one by one for as long as it takes. He is going to continue to tell you day after day for as long as it takes, I love you and I want you to be here. This is good news for the personal trauma that we experience on an individual level. And it's also good news for the corporate things that we see in this world that frustrate us. What are the big picture global issues that you feel like just are out of reach? When you look around and you see all the technology and innovation that 2017 has brought the world, and yet we still can't solve some problems. The writer is coming. He is coming and he is going to redeem this world. And he is going to be the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the President of Presidents, the greatest leader that the world has ever seen. And he's going to solve racism. He's going to solve slavery. He's going to do away with the objectification sexually of children, of women, of men, everybody. He's going to do away with famine. He's going to do away with disease. What news did you just get about your health? He's going to throw death away. He's gonna redeem us and resurrect our bodies. The rider is coming, my friends. What pain are you feeling right now? Allow that pain to continue to echo into the into your prayers. Come, Lord Jesus. When I was a kid, I used to think, I'm afraid of the coming of the rider. But the more I see what's going on in the world and the more pain I experience, I think, no, 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 no. Come. Come Lord Jesus. My final reflection on this passage is on the thrones in that section about judging. So if you're in the band and you have work to do up here, so you can come up here as well. What do you think about that section about standing before the judges and being judged by the deeds that you're done? When I was a kid, now, okay, so even maybe even teen and, and more, I started to lose sleep at night thinking, how am I supposed to stand before the throne? What is that going to look like? Everybody's going to be there. You, me, Elvis Presley, George Washington, everybody's going to be there. Books are open and they're judged according to their works, according to their deeds. Well, if I had to ask Jesus a question about that, I would say, what are those deeds? Luckily, a lot of times when I would ask Jesus a question, somebody did ask Jesus that question. Remember the words of Jesus in the famous chapter in John chapter 6. Remember that chapter where he said, I am the bread of life. Somebody asked him this exact question What are the works of God? That word for works, that word for deeds, same word in Revelation 20, verse 12. What are the deeds? And Jesus' response to them is what? The works of God are to believe in the one that he sent. Could it be that simple? That those who are judged according to their deeds are judged according to if they believed in the one who was sent. That they believe that God sent his only son into the world because he loved us. Brandon Manning used to say that we'll be asked this one question in when, when the age to come when we see Jesus. He'll say to us, Did you believe that I loved you? What if we're judged according to the question, Did you believe that I loved you? Let's just pause and reflect and take a moment to pray. Those of us who don't have the lamb who was slain at the center of our lives, there are some of us who who are trivializing our position as witnesses and priests. There are some of us who don't believe in the one who was sent. Who don't believe that God loves us. I'm gonna challenge each of us to just evaluate ourselves and pick one of those things. Prayer, prayer of repentance. We repent of not having you at the center of our lives. Turn away from that idea of putting ourselves on the throne. We repent of not taking our witness seriously. and We would be honored to represent you in our sphere of influence, in our families, in our workplaces. We would be honored to stand against the lies that are in our, con- in our culture that are so detestable. And we would rather die than let those continue. We repent of all the times that we have chose not to believe that you love us. Here we are. We believe, but help our unbelief. Even now, tell us how much you love us and how eager you are to return. How eager you are to come and completely restore this world and restore all of us. How eager you are to come and vindicate the oppressed. We receive your love. Come, Lord Jesus, come.